Welcome to the Stories or Soul Food podcast with your hosts, Brian Cole and best-selling author, N.D. Wilson. This audio is brought to you by Cannonball Books and Great Homeschool Conventions. Great Homeschool Conventions are the homeschooling events of the year, offering outstanding speakers, hundreds of workshops on today's top parenting and homeschooling topics and the largest homeschool curriculum exhibit halls in the United States of America. We believe passionately in the God-given right and responsibility of parents to train and educate their children. Stories Our Soul Food Podcast, Episode 4. This is episode four, and uh, we're here with the usual suspects and a new guest Hi. for today. Douglas Wilson, pastor, award-winning author of more than a, a hundred books now, right? Well, not more than a hundred awards. Oh, okay. Yeah. A thousand. A thousand awards. <laughs> One of them won, uh, won an award, and we're not quite sure how that happened. <laughs> <laughs> From Christianity Today, though, nonetheless. So, yeah. it's, uh, it's an important book. Book of the year, right there. Even yep. Jellyfish. A great read for anyone looking to feel a little more cheerful about the culture of mega churches around the country. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, welcome, Pastor Wilson. Thanks. AKA my dad. Yeah, that's the other part of this puzzle. N.D. Wilson's father. Uh, and we're here today to talk about raising writers. Mm-hmm. Specifically, how does one do it? Or if you think you have one. Uh, well, maybe that's where we should start. How do you decide if you want to raise a writer? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great question. Usually, I think those decisions are taken out of your hands. So, you can't put in what God left out and you're going to be finding yourself uh, looking at kids who have a certain set of gifts and who fit into the family a certain way. And if you have a, I think you're more likely to get a writer out of a family that's given to books, invested in books, invested in reading together and that sort of thing. So it's not like um, someone just decides randomly, I want my three-year-old to skate in the Olympics, and then you start training. It doesn't quite work that way. So kind of step one to be raising a reader. Right. And then seeing what happens. Right. See what they do with it. Because if, you, if they go straight to, I want to be a writer, they're saying, I want to be listened to, but I don't want to listen. Mm. I want people to pay attention to me, but I, I don't want to pay ten- attention to anyone else, which reminds me of Ambrose Bierce's definition of a bore, uh, someone who speaks when I wish them to listen. <laughs> <laughs> so, fledgling writer problems right there. Yeah. And you, you can't grind uh, the grain for flour if you've got no grain going in. It's got to be, you, you've got to have intake. And when you've given enough of the right kind of intake, where you're reading to your kids and you see how they respond to it, then you can start seeing, is this the response of a critical reader or someone with an eye that they can tell? So, Nate, when did you, I think you've talked about this before, but when did you start to think, hey, writing is what I want to do? Sixth grade. Yeah, it was sixth grade. And I think that if you try to raise readers, are we willing to, are we willing, we three, to say that everyone should raise readers, that your kids should be readers? It seems, yes. Yeah. You can't want to, I'm trying to find a loophole there. 
obviously there will be exceptions of people with uh, mental issues or other things, but ultimately we should want all of our kids to be readers. They should have the, the capacity to read and the critical ability to read and the- Read lots of things. Yeah, because ultimately they have to be able to read scripture. So, you know, like they, if you only read the Bible, you won't be a good reader. Uh, you won't have, uh, you know, you won't necessarily have the same kind of um, calibration or absorption capacity or the ability to make lateral connections that you would if you are reading a bunch of other stuff too. I think that's fair to say. Yeah. And a bunch of kids are going to become readers and they're going to be lifelong readers and they love reading. Yeah. And that's a blessing. But it's not going to be a one-for-one, one. every yeah. reader becomes a writer. Right. It's going to be one in 10 or so, one in 25. Or, yeah, maybe one in 100 even. But I, basically, we, we have the obligation to raise readers. And then you'll have kids in the pack who differentiate, who say, hey, I want to write. You know, they want to create, they want to be writers. And then the question then would come to a parent, what do you do now? So what do you do when your sixth grader wants to be a writer? What do you want? What do you do when your ninth grader wants to be a writer? When your tenth grader wants to be a writer? You're kind of past the early foundational phase of raising them. You know, you're you're in finishing mode. So how do you how do you finish them as writers? So Doug Nate said he wanted to be a writer in sixth grade. When did you? Well, not believe him, but <laughs> when did when did, well yeah? When did you believe him? <laughs> That's a great question. It might be the first time anybody's asked you. Now, I think I took it seriously from that first moment, from uh, his statement. Interact, you, you always interact with things like that seriously. Interestingly, my first ambition in this vein was also when I was in sixth grade, only I phrased it a little bit differently to myself. I knew in sixth grade that I wanted to make books. That's, that's what I wanted to do. So that was very early on. So when Nate was in sixth grade and he wanted to be a writer, I responded with, well, this is what you do, instead of responding with, no, you can't, or that's a long shot, or that's not possible. Or way to go, buddy. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Anything you do will be fantastic, I'm yeah. sure. <laughs> yeah. So, what were some of those things? What did you tell him? You have to write? I guess that's the number one well, thing. Well, I, I forget if this was the same conversation or not, but I remember uh, you had a visceral hatred of um, Babbitt, I think it was. Yes. Sinclair Lewis, right? Well, yeah, which I and I'm having trouble trying to imagine why on earth you would have read that book that early. You know, but anyway, but you, <laughs> be readers, right? That's rule readers. number one. <laughs> well, no, but also be readers. That this this is going to be one of the tells. If you have readers who devour things, but have enough discrimination to hate certain things, mm. this didn't work, or or to be critical of certain things. There there's some kids that have all the discernment of a vacuum cleaner. They just if it's words on a page, they read it and it, they don't make any distinctions between good writing and poor writing. Yeah, we, and we've talked about good picky eating in mm -hmm. terms of reading and bad picky eating. Mm -hmm. Like when somebody's really picky in a bad way or somebody's really picky in a healthy growing connoisseur kind of a way. Right. And when I was, when I was a kid, my dad would read to us all the time. He read all kinds of books to us. And I remember one time, this is very a vivid memory for me, uh, there was some Christian you know, a series of books for kids. It was a Christian version of like Hardy Boys or, you know, something at that level. Sugar Creek Gang. Uh, or, or Danny Orlis or it, it was something like that. And I remember my dad 
was normally the reader of the family. He'd read things to us, and he he revolted. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he, he didn't he didn't want to read it. We were thinking, come on, it's just it's just a it's just a story. And he was saying, no, the writing is so bad. This is just <laughs> so he's introduced the idea of oh, there are there are better and worse ways of doing this. And if if you have a kid who who is very opinionated about what they don't like in a story and what they do like, what they love in a story, or, or this was great or it could, be, it could be improved, as Nate very much was, that's something you want to encourage. And I don't, I've told a lot of parents not to try to make their kids write too much too quickly because it can be very, very discouraging. If your eighth grader wants to play in the NBA and then, re- and then realizes that they can't dunk right now, and so they just walk away. Yeah. Same thing with architecture or anything that takes years and years of preparation. It can be very easy to be discouraged quickly. So I'm sure I wrote more, but I remember writing a thing in eighth grade. Yeah, you know, like one. <laughs> read, read a ton. Knew I wanted to be a writer in sixth grade, but had the wisdom and foresight to think, yeah, not yet. Eighth grade, and then a bunch of short stuff in high school, but never trying to write a novel. There's a lot of kids who set out to write novels that I, that I run into at conferences and so on. And a lot of it's impressive where they've done a huge amount of work, but the problem is it's just deeply flawed and it's, it's not salvageable and they end up- And it's simultaneously, it's too big to fail. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, too, yeah. They, have too much, they have too much into it. They have too many years into it. They've been working on it for five years or you know, any, any crazy amount of time. And so they don't have the perspective to say, I should walk away from this and do so. This is all, oh. been an, this is all but an exercise. You know, this is not the book that's going to be your breakout hit. This was an exercise of childhood. And part of the problem of that is that the kids will have made all the basic fundamental mistakes in the first page. Gotcha. That, yeah, of course. That they will make through the entirety of the manuscript. So they're young. They're young writers. They're, they're starting out and... Almost by accident, I think that worked out in my favor. So I wrote very short stuff and was able to be critical of very short stuff and tear it apart and throw it away without being too invested in it. Uh, It was never too big to fail. And I could make the mistakes I was going to make rapidly because everybody does when you're a juvenile writer and then you throw it away and you can do something else and try to just grind until you can make a brick. And that's what I tell aspiring writers now. It's like, don't worry about building a cathedral can you make a brick? You know, if you can make a perfect brick, then you can make a cathedral because you just have to do that 10 million times. Yeah, let's just call a brick a perfect, a complete sentence. There we go. Can you write? <laughs> Which is harder than it looks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Then a slightly bigger brick, a paragraph. Can you do a page? Can you write one page where you can edit the thing, tear it apart, refine it, sharpen it, and it's perfect? And that's got to be encouraging for kids too, because you really can think of in terms of a paragraph or a page. Yeah. Right. And you also, another thing that kids can do, and this is something to keep in mind in schooling, in the formal education, and that is our secular world has pounded away at us the idea that originality comes from spontaneity, that you're original if you just erupt, if all this genius flows out of you, instead of realizing that there's a lot of copying, there's a lot of imitating. Yeah. You're imitating the world God made, you're copying the world, but then you're copying other writers. So if- yeah, training off the masters. Yeah. So if, if what you want to do is you, you put the kids in the English class and say, here, try to reproduce this paragraph 
in Hemingway's voice or try to reproduce this in Tolkien's voice or try to try to write a paragraph just copying right mm. um and ironically copying intelligently is the path to originality trying to be original just gives you a spilled puddle yeah well, c- copying kind of awakens your nerve endings to voice mm-hmm. like what makes a paragraph a tolkien paragraph and not a lewis paragraph right and you have to actually pay attention closely you can't just consume like a reader and say i liked it you have to be able to differentiate flavors and rhythms and and voice and if you can copy that then you can you know start out on your own journey towards a particular flavor and voice that you like to use in your own writing i remember one time going through one of c.s lewis's essays i think it was out of christian reflections and highlighting the first like four or five words of every sentence of every paragraph uh, every sentence at the beginning of each paragraph, just to say, how did Lewis start? Mm. You know, how did he get into the paragraph? How did he launch? And I think that teaching kids not slavish copying, but intelligent copying, that opens the way to improving on it. Can you improve on it? Can you make that yeah. better? So that's very different than the three-point paragraph approach yes. to writing. Is there a place for that or do you think it, it comes with or what, how do you distinguish those? Should most kids be trying to imitate great writing as opposed to say, hey, first I put my topic sentence, then my supporting point, and then I conclude it up? Or I think the, the basic structure of that, that sort of thing is the kind of thing that ought to be, that you guys ought to spend a week on in school. <laughs> <laughs> and I've seen programs that spend years on that concept. Well, the, what, you're gonna do, what you're doing is teaching kids to write the kind of boring paragraph that has no personality, no voice, no... It's the kind of thing that you could drop in the middle of a textbook somewhere. Yeah, they might have a future on Wikipedia. (laughs) (laughs) Unpaid, crowdsourced dictionary, encyclopedic definition style. It gets the little check mark from all the other readers who who read it. Inoffensive. This is is an inoffensive paragraph. Basically, I think that you ought to be wanting uh, an aspiring writer to be finding his voice, imitating different voices. Which ones can I imitate better? What's cuts with the grain most naturally with my personality and so on. So, for example, one of, one of my projects is I'm reading through all of Woodhouse's books. So, he wrote like 90 novels and I'm, I've gotten 70 or so done. But his early schoolboy books, you know, kids off at school. Yeah. If you read a Woodhouse from 1905, it's not Woodhouse. But there was a moment. That's when he was young. But when, when he was young and he was making it, he was making a living as a writer. But it, there was nothing distinctively Woodhousian about it. But there was a, a moment where the penny dropped. Yep. And all of a sudden, he found his stride. He found his place. He found his voice. And everything after that is Woodhouse. You know, it's, well, of course, obviously, the early Woodhouse is Woodhouse. But he hadn't found his distinctive voice, the timbre of his voice. Well, it's like a, if you read Dimer by Lewis, you go find... You know, pre-conversion C.S. Lewis or early Lewis, mm-hmm. uh, it's not going to be, pil- you know, Pilgrim's Regress, Dimer, is, it's different. Yeah. It's still the same guy, but he's not there yet. He's not mature. So, it'd be like a, a whiskey that's too young, a wine that's too young. <laughs> it's not fully become itself yet. I think that um, if you have kids of varying ages who want to try to write, I would say if they're still in junior high or high school, encourage them not to write a novel unless you really think they're ready, making them focus on small microcosms, on reading broadly, on imitating, 
And on making bricks. Can they make their own bricks? I would also throw in there teaching them the discipline of writing poetry. Yeah. Even if they're never going to be a poet. But and I'm I'm talking about classical poetry yeah. with form and poetry that scans. Meter, meaning, rhyme, dif- right. difficulty. It's like running an obstacle course if you're a Navy SEAL. Right. And you you could if you wrote a bunch of sonnets in high school because you had an English teacher that made you do it, and then you never wrote another sonnet again for the rest of your life, it will improve your prose writing. Everything you write after that? Yeah, you, because yeah. you can hear the cadences. And there's a, there are different yeah. cadences for reading, and there are different cadences for speaking. And one of the things I found is I've, <laughs> as I've been reading blog posts and stuff, I've painted myself into more than one corner where something looks fine on the page, and then you try to say it. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you think, oh, okay. Ideally, you want uh, writing that inhabits the page easily and is spoken easily. And, and you want an ear that's attuned to those sorts of cadences. So, like, like imitating the voices of other authors uh, like wakens, awakens you to the concept of voice and timing is a huge part of it. Mm-hmm. I think I remember, Nate, you had us do an assignment once, or maybe it was both of you, where you wrote a C.S. Lewis quote up on the board that didn't seem that great and told us to try to improve it. And we absolutely couldn't like you move one part out and you find out why it's in there the exact way or i should yeah. say it was not that it wasn't great but that it yeah. wasn't spectacular and then yeah you start to take parts apart not one of the quotes that was on a bookmark right yeah no yeah. not one of the fake lewis <laughs> i think that then so if, if you do train in formal poetry you're waking yourself up to rhythms you know to the skeletal structure of the english language right where imitation wakens you to voice but once you have turned on the light switch of meter, you don't have to keep doing it. I mean, you, you can, yeah. but once, once those antennae are functioning and you're aware of the bones of meter that are latent in the English language, you're just aware of them. Now you can work with them. And you can also edit your project without even thinking about what it is you're doing. You're just reading through yeah. the sentence and you move this word from here to there and you're not saying to yourself, and now I am going to make it. You're not, con- it's like walking. You're not thinking about what muscles you're moving. You're just doing it. Another thing about this, and this is, uh, especially if you have a child who appears to be gifted in this area and they've got a vivid imagination and they're good with words and they love it and they're, keep them away from Rudyard Kipling or Annie Dillard because, <laughs> because th- they're, they're good, obviously, but it's sort of like reading them is sort of like, um, eating 16 Milky Way bars in a row, <laughs> and at the end of which you go, woof. You know, I mean, Shakespeare is that way. The reader needs if, to if breathe. Read, yeah, if you read Shakespeare right before you try to write something, uh-huh. Kipling's the same way. If you read some people with really strong, dark chocolate voices, right. you know, just the flavor is really, really strong, then you're going you're gonna to get drug into it pretty quickly. Right, and so if some kids need to be encouraged to step up, other kids... You need to say, whoa, you know, yeah. you need some roughage in there. That's even back to don't write the novel. Right. Whoa, like, whoa, yeah. don't do that yet. Don't just binge on those dragon novels. Don't just right. dive into Kipling and want to write Kipling, you know, poetry every day. Right. There's going to be plenty of steering and whoa and a lot of other, but if your kids need the giddy up, then they're not aspiring writers. You might need the giddy up for... Aspiring like people, you want to be readers who are reluctant readers. But if people are already voracious readers and they want to be writers, it's going to be all woe and 
you know, pulling left, pulling right, trying to get them in the right channels. So Jim Wilson and then Doug and then Nate, Nate, do you, you are, you're doing a lot of these things with some of your own kids, right? Trying to, yeah. Yeah. Encourage. It's, it's still very much in read, 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 mm -hmm. you know, read good stuff, read, read, read. You know, I've got uh, kids who can, who can sit down and just write vast quantities and like many people their age, they're going to make the same mistakes that they made in the first chapter they'll make in every chapter. So there's no reason yet for them to be trying to tackle a hundred thousand words. Gotcha. Um, you know, it's like, it's my 17 year old's doing, working on two graphic novels right now, and she's gifted as an illustrator and also as a writer. And it's the, it's valuable and it's a steady drumbeat. It's a state, it's mapping the whole story, learning the architecture of the story, and then a drumbeat of like chipping away at a page at a time. That's been really valuable. But the valuable part has been grinding on each page as she finishes it and the revision process one page at a time, not trying to do 50 and then revise. You know, incremental revision, lay the next brick, try to make the next brick, refine that brick, like edit it and then lay it, you know, like yeah. and just methodically work through. So that's even though I think long term, she'll be more of a novelist than a graphic novelist, she'll be more of a novelist with illustrations. It's really been great for her to kind of chip away, uh, mar marching through. I do think, I don't want to be discouraging to parents who have kids who've already written 37 novels or have that <laughs> six-year six manuscript. And I could say one of the ways that I, well, one of the ways it's helpful to move away from something is to not throw it away, not burn it yet, but to stick it in a folder and say, I'm saving this. I'm not throwing it in the trash. It's going to sit over here for a little bit while I go write something else. One of the most important things I think for any parent of somebody who's 16 and has a 500 page novel is to get them to work on something else. And then you, your prayer is that they don't make it big as a great author later with, a, with an adult novel and then <laughs> someone wants to publish your juvenilia yeah. <laughs> yeah. and then you go back and read it and you say, oh my word. Yeah, when you read Chesterton's unpublished stuff, you're like, oh. That's why that was not published. <laughs> no wonder that wasn't published. That, that kind of thing is, that happens. Yeah. So later on, they might want to go back and destroy those files. Right. But if I'm going to delete a chapter from a novel or a huge section of a chapter, it's psychologically much easier if I throw it onto a clipboard, if I have a file where I cut and paste it. So I'm not just throwing away that work. Even if it was just two hours of work, I don't want to throw it away. So yeah. I stick it somewhere and then I'm able to move on from it. And then, well, you know, in another day or two, I have far more objectivity and I'm able to just hit delete uh, usually, or sometimes I pull stuff back out of it and harvest it for something else. But the same thing's true of a young writer. If they've invested years of their lives in this and they have not been equipped, they've not been equipped with voice. They've not worked on their voice. They're not, they don't understand meter. They haven't really been intentional. They've just been stream of consciousnessing mm -hmm. through the whole thing. Setting that aside is really important. And then working on the brick, work on the craft of the brick. <laughs> another, another thing for, with your kids is you want to teach them to uh, respect the grammarian who's teaching them at school, but do not absolutize the grammarian who's, uh, don't deify the grammarian. Yeah. If your kid's really obsessed with the rules of language and grammar, then they're a future copy editor, not a future right. novelist. Right. And you, but at the same time, you don't want to have them turning in manuscripts that display utter contempt for the copywriter yeah. because you can't be prevailed upon to put a period in or capitalize 
Illinois. You're just typing like a madman. I like that not capitalizing Illinois is contempt <laughs> for the copywriter. Contempt for middle it's, America. It's a golden rule, you know? I don't Capitalize <laughs> Illinois people. Yes. That was, well. <laughs> yes, I understand. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> yeah, you don't, you don't want them to have contempt for the copywriter. You want them to understand the rules. Right. Understand the rules that they feel free to break for the sake of for the sake of the story or the arc, but they shouldn't be breaking it, breaking them because they're lazy or because they, they don't care. Basically, they should pay do all due respect to the basic rules of grammar and not be having the copy editors do your basic work for you. Uh, you want them finding typos and making suggestions to tighten and clarify, clarify. dangling modifiers. I would imagine it, and you guys hate it if a copy editor comes in and messes with your voice. Uh, yes. <laughs> Way mucho. It's a whole thing. You know, editors can be great. Copy editors and novelists don't get along really because the copy editor loses track of the impact or the purpose of a paragraph or a page. A really good one can be uh, on board and share a vision, but a lot of them will really struggle with a sentence fragment. Oh, yeah. Or something like that where, no, I'm aware. I am aware that there's no verb here. You know, I, I am aware of this and it's here for the rhythm of a scene and it's here to create stress and it's here to, I have all these reasons for it, but, you know, they, they can struggle to cope. That's so, especially the case if the copyright, copy editor is an aspiring novelist himself. <laughs> Deadly combination. Which, <laughs> which is frequently the case. And so they try to live out their creative juices vicariously through you that's not a good thing but if you've got a good sturdy copy editor that knows that writing is one thing and editing is another uh they can they can make your prose sing they can they can shine it up real nice and there are yeah. a number of valuable things that can be done but you want to begin with uh teaching your kids to have respect for the basic skill the basic screw, screwdriver and hammer and pliers of writing they should know the rules. You should never be breaking a grammatical rule that you are unaware of. Right. But you're learning the different parts of speech yeah. so that you can do things with right. them, not, not as an end in itself. And the, the hard part is in Henry V, when, when Henry says uh, to Kate, we are the makers of fashion, uh, when she says, this is not the fashion, and he says, we are the makers of fashion. It's a great line and is very true of Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. You know, just very, very true. Lots of things he did that weren't it's done. okay now <laughs> yeah, yeah like, and now they're done and the thing is that language is a living organism and grammarians follow along afterward trying to codify rules that are only descriptive after the fact of of what has already been done successfully and it's it's writers and it's great writers who actually like take the language in new directions uh, and it it grows and there's whole big branches whole groves can sprout up off of other things. Now, we also have plenty of writers who take that mantle and try to destroy the language. Mm -hmm. They do the, I will not capitalize, I will not I will not capitalize, yeah, Illinois. The, Gert, the Gertrude yeah. Stein approach. Yeah. 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 Right. They, they can do all sorts of defiant, narcissistic things, but ultimately, with really great writers, language is born. Like, language grows and language changes and in a decade. The grammarians will be editing somebody else's manuscript saying, no, that's not done. This is the way it's done. And it's some ancient rule came down from Sinai yeah. in somebody's novel in 94. <laughs> I mean, Tom Wolfe invented words that are now in the dictionary. 
then he's a fairly recent writer. I mean, he only just died. And there's a lot of stuff that he stuck in there. And that's true of any great writer. The language is bigger and better when they're done with it after the fact. So the grammarian impulse, you want to have writers who know all the rules. They're in there. They're aware of them. And yet they also know that they're steering a river. You know, they're kind of riding a current. They can cut canals. They can do all sorts of things. Another important thing is that you want your kids to have an education, not just be readers. So they're reading the craft of writing, but that they're reading encyclopedias and reading stuff about the world. Because in the modern aspirational world, people want to write so they can express themselves, so they can express their feelings. And you should actually be wanting your kids to write so they can describe the world. They can tell the story that that's going on in the world. That means you have to know something about the world. That means history class, not not just your uh, reading. And not just your lit courses. Yeah, so you wouldn't just do GA Henty right. <laughs> 24-7. So, and that, that is a huge paradigm shift when you're not writing for as a form of self-expression. You're writing as a form of world curation. Right. It's a very, 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 very different approach. And the, the self-expression, like post-romantic era, self-expression writers, it's just all forms of emotional or spiritual nudism. Mm-hmm. You know, where it's just, you have these people who are exhibitionists right. uh, and they're trying to pry their own ribcage open and make you stare at their shriveled up little soul mm-hmm. and just how much can they make this about themselves, even if they're, you know, showing you all their brokenness and their, right. uh, how, how shattered they are as a human. Like, don't, it's not your job. It's like an artist who only ever did self-portraits. Yeah. Yeah. Something's wrong here. Yeah. Yeah. I see how connecting the idea of world curation versus self-expression connects well with what you guys said about starting with reading because you start with appreciating other people Mm -hmm. and appreciating the world around you and start from that place of humility and excitement about other things absorption i remember uh when i was first setting out to write i remember a a companion along the road who also wanted to write who told me that he hated to read was not interested in reading at all i would always rather read something than write something You know, because that's the pleasure. The pleasure's in the reading, but then I'll get antsy to create. You know, like eventually Mm -hmm. there's enough static electricity builds up from having read that I I want, I've got the urge to go create something. But I can't imagine somebody who just wanted to self-express. And from from their cistern of thoughts about themselves and observations of themselves was going to try to create art for others. And that was the complete extent of of that cistern. Dry cistern, broken cistern, yeah. going to yeah, run out. There. Yeah. So um, I, would, I could jump in here and recommend that if you have older kids who want to write, they should read Wordsmithy by my father right here. Wordsmithy's great, just about the writer's life and reading and broad approach. I can plug some of my own product, which would be the School of Fantastical Wordcraft for kids who are interested in trying to write fantasy. That's a DVD uh, that Canon Press has. Canon Press has both the book and the DVD. But really, the approach should be create readers of your kids. Do that by uh, reading lots of stories to them, with them, early and often. When do you think parents should stop worrying about whether their kids are reading stuff that's bad? Well, I think they should stop worrying about it as soon as they see that the kids' filters are in place. They've got, they've got a filtration system that yeah. actually works. And different kids get that. Some kids never get it. Yeah. And 
you can't let them near anything that's corrupting because they just don't know how to yeah, process there, it. There is no immune system. There is no immune system. And, and so it's life in the bubble for you. Uh, <laughs> uh, but that's a fit. That's it's Benji uh, from here to the end of your days. <laughs> yes. Uh, or Sugar or, or Bambi meets the Smurfs. Basically, it's not an age, it's a reaction. So if they're engaging with the story, read a book or watch a movie. And they come back with thoughtful, intelligent yeah. critiques of uh, this was this was nihilistic in this respect, and this was they were they were trying to bribe me with this, and and they interact with it. Uh, that's far healthier than someone who just looks up online whether there's a a dam or a hell in it, yeah, and then just avoids it because they they're not that's not really a functional filter. No, it's not. It's uh it's super easy though, and it's easy for parents. Right. Yeah. You know, it's, it makes it much simpler for parents to cuss count, you know, a book or theme, you know, theme count a book than it is to like constantly check your kids' filters. Right. Where it's like, yeah, you're reading this. What are you thinking of it? How are you engaging with it? Right. Because I think most people, we've talked about this a bit at our house, but the, you don't filter anything as a little kid. And then as it starts to get bigger, you're like, uh oh, better put some filters up. And I think right. you've talked before about Doug about that being backwards and Nate too. Yeah. Right. You, you're instilling the filters from day one and you're, the idea is for the parents to back away the older the kids get instead of swooping in, you know. The older the kids get. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So, that's, that's interesting. So, you, if a kid, I assume that there's, is, is kind of an age cutoff. Mm-hmm. You want the filters operating for their frame, for their age. So, fifth graders, sixth graders reading things that they're chucking, that they're rejecting is not, doesn't mean that that's just okay. Right. You know, well, your fifth grader reading Herman Hess is not- Not okay. Yeah, don't do it. And, you know, afterwards, they if they say, well, hey, I know it's bad. Right. Like, okay, well, the instant you did, you should have put it down. Right. But later on, if somebody st- starts taking apart Herman Hess, like, okay. Great. So, there is a lot of parental wisdom required as you kind of mature into things. Right. But the goal is a functional immune system, a functional filter, not a- GA henty for life. And that can really hamper somebody who could be a great writer if you stick them on a marshmallow diet and that's strictly it. They'll never, they're never going to run into any grist. They're never going to run into anything that they hate. Right. They're just going to be in a tepid bath. Yeah. Eating the same sandwich every day for the rest of their life. Yeah. So they do have to come up against things that they won't like. And that goes back to our, our picky eater episode. You want them to become picky themselves, especially people who are going to be writers. They have to have far more violent, a far more violent reaction than you do to all sorts of things. That's what you're looking to, that's what you're looking to heighten. Or people are outraged at character inconsistencies, you know, or, or things like that. I remember, uh, I was, I was an adult, but I remember I was 22, I think when I read or tried to read the Fountainhead (laughs) by Rand and threw the book across the room, literally about 50 pages from the end. As soon as she started smashing all her puppets to make her point, <laughs> you know, like that's, there was no, it was a wandering, you know, over large thing that she was building and she had an agenda and it was getting, you know, whatever, 3000 pages in or something ridiculous. And so it was time to close the loop and, and make her point. Uh, and so characters had to stop being themselves radical inconsistency people are behaving in ways that is completely not how they would behave and i you know i I was reading it as a favor 
you know, somebody wanted me to, but I never did finish it. Right. And I never will. <laughs> and we should yeah. relish that yeah, rather than saying, ah, oh, why didn't you, you just know, read the yeah. last 50? Yeah. Yeah. So, and so if I'd chucked it, if I'd, if I'd been astute enough in the first 150, I would have chucked it. But that kind of thing, uh, I think is important to cultivate in young readers. I remember, man, I don't remember which, what age I was. I think junior high. I stayed up all night. It was the first time I ever pulled an all-nighter. And I stayed up all night reading a Crusader novel. That was terrible. And I hated it. And that's why I stayed up all night. It's because I hated it. And I had to finish it so I could be done with it. <laughs> and I hadn't yet figured out just the, the ability to turn off. Because there's a grip. There's a story grip. Like you can hate something, but you still are just in. You're still in it. And your imagination's there. It was horrendous. And I remember finishing it. Uh, I was right at the end and you got up to go to work and you looked in my room because my light was on and it was early 6 a.m. or something. And you're like, what are you, what are you doing? And I was like, I'm reading this stupid book. <laughs> <laughs> I have foregone sleep because I don't know how to quit reading. I don't know how to put a book down. So that might not be the problem one of your children faces, but it also could be like learning how to just throw it away, how to turn it off. Same thing with movies or shows, like how to turn it off and walk away is an important skill, but others, you know, need to learn the opposite, how to finish. People who are always quitting halfway through, they've got five novels they're reading that they're partly, partly through. So it's not one size fits all, but um, push and giddy up and woe as needed. Well, there we go. Speaking of, of turning it off, I think- We did it. We did it. We successfully raised all your writers. Absolutely. <laughs> Encourage them. Teach them to be readers first and foremost. And even if they don't turn into writers, they'll have something of value. And then teach them to make bricks. Lots of bricks. Lots. Spank them if they s split an infinitive. <laughs> yeah, I think that's what we said. Uh, and even harder if they dangle a modifier. <laughs> there we go. Oxford commas everywhere. Thank you for being our guest today, Doug. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the Stories or Soul Food Podcasts. If you've been enjoying the Stories or Soul Food podcast, I want to encourage you to rate and review it on whatever platform you use. Ratings and reviews go a long way in making sure this podcast goes as far as it possibly can. Thanks. Thanks.